and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women in science, technology, engineering and maths, or STEM, an opportunity to share honestly and openly about what it's really like working in these typically male-dominated subjects. Each week, one woman shares her stories and experiences. She could be a public figure, the girl next door, or someone from a far-off land. The point is she'll be deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we're not distracted by the details of her achievements, her labels, or what she looks like. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, also a woman in STEM. I studied mechanical engineering and ended up as a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting-edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my television work, I've met some incredible women from a diverse range of STEM fields. And you know what? I've been more amazed about what I've learned from these women when the cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. These women have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And it's that off-air honesty that I'd like to share with you today through silence. This week, my guest is in the field of systems innovation and emerging technology. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to be on this quite unusual show where it's really all about honesty. What did you feel that you could contribute? to a podcast like this? Um, well, thank you for having me. Um, I I mean, I'm always excited to share perspective. I try to be really honest about challenges that I have faced along my career um, because I think too often the desire to, you know, seem perfect and highlight achievements and we're, you know, we're afraid to share the struggles of the everyday. Um, and so I think that helping to build a richer portrait of the challenges we face in pursuit of things that we really believe in is, is an important thing to do. It's interesting that you launch straight into that kind of concept of always wanting to be perfect. Um, what were you like as a kid before self-consciousness kicked in? I struggle with this because I, I feel like I was, I, I never fit in. So I think I was pretty self-conscious early on. I was really aware of, uh, I just didn't look like other kids and I didn't quite fit into my town. Um, my mom was an immigrant and my, my parents were just different. So, I mean, I think I was always aware of being different. And I also, I think even from early on, I um, excelled in, well, I excelled in science and math. And so I was keen aware of being labeled a nerd pretty early. <laughs> so that was something I just grew to own even by the time I was in middle school. So how did the nerd manifest itself at school? I mean, I think this is the, this is the really tricky part of this is that especially for girls, just answering questions and just participating and kind of letting your skills and sort of intellectual capacity be visible is enough to immediately differentiate you. So in some ways it's like, well, being myself just meant that I was a nerd. You know, being curious about things or being committed was was enough. As a kid, being different, like, were you sad about that or were you proud? I mean, I think initially it was really, it was for sure tough. I mean, I was very, very conscious that I just, I really wanted to fit in. I think that's sort of, that, that, that's, I think, the common case probably, you know, through early primary kind of education and for all kinds of reasons. And but I think as I was nearing or approaching sort of secondary education, I, at some point, it just, I don't know, I just kind of embraced it and was like, this is who I am, like, bleh, you know, and looked for, just looked for others who were okay with that. And I mean, I feel really lucky, like in high school, um, there were a group of us who really loved chemistry. It was a small group, and we managed to petition to get an advanced placement chemistry class 
um, to happen. And it was sort of met the minimum number of people. Like it, we just, we just barely squeaked by, you know, so eventually I feel like sticking to your guns helps you find your tribe, but that doesn't mean it's not a lonely road. So chemistry was your STEM thing then? I mean, I started off being really passionate about chemistry. I mean, I, I loved science in general. Both of my parents were scientists. Um, they each specialized in a different branch of physics. Um, and I applied to university to be a chemistry major, thinking I might want to be a doctor. But realistically, I was always interested in people and wanting to be a doctor. I was, you know, early on interested in what I thought would be psychiatry, and I ended up in psychology. So... I mean, I think there's this um, underlying interest in how things work, and in particular, how humans work. And chemistry is a is a you know massive underlying part of how humans function. Interesting. In what way would you say that chemistry is involved in that? Because I think of chemistry as like the elements, the periodic table. Yeah, I could I can see how. I mean, a lot of people probably think, oh, well, there's biology is really how humans function, and but even within that, there's mechanics, and <laughs> you know, if you go into sports medicine, you're dealing with mechanics. Um, and, you know, joint function and stuff like that. I, I think for me, what I mean is that the neurochemistry, like really, really, if we look at brain function, you know, and, and how, how humans re- react with the world. I mean, I think there's underlying issues like genetics, um, and then there's complicating external factors, whether those are environmental factors or uh, kind of nurture and home and social factors. But neurochemistry is really a mediator in all of that. And so I think, I took a class in college on human behavioral biology, which probably was, I mean, it was certainly one of my favorite classes, but it really kind of synthesized the role that neurochemistry and underlying biological functions, um, how those things play a role as we intersect with challenges in the world, things that cause us stress, family, relationships, um, growth mindsets, everything like that. So I think that's kind of where I came at it from. That just sounds so scary, technical, like really, really sciencey. And for for maybe young girls who are interested in the sciences but not sure they want to really throw themselves into a course, like as a child, was it obvious that you were going to be a STEM kid? I still, I mean, the weird thing is I still struggle. I mean, I, half of me tends to think like, like the school, this may give this away, but you know, where I went to university, there's, there's techies and fuzzies. And I mean, I would technically see myself as a fuzzy. Like I, I studied theater and art and, you know, initially like kind of peeled off to go into film and I was raised in a household where science was definitely the primary lens on the world, but art and music was very much a part of it. And so I think that the the way that I was introduced to science was not this monolithic thing. It was really curiosity. Science was about, ooh, that thing is cool. How does it do that? And then investigating it. And like, oh, let's try some stuff. Let's see if we can, can we change it? You know, that that I think is the is the blocker is when we talk about science as this monolithic scary sort of black box, it takes away from what most kids I think do naturally, which is inquire about the world around them and how it works. And that curiosity and wonder for the world is really what I believe to be the root of STEM. But in your experience going through STEM, did did that change? Did that that perspective, that wonder and curiosity, did it change as you studied? I guess there's two ways to answer that question. One of them would be that when I landed at university, I found myself in an incredibly challenging math course, an advanced calculus class. And I was just 
drowning. And it was not, I, I could do it if I really, really, really tried hard. But I, I realized there were a whole bunch of people in the class of very different stripes who were excelling. And I think it's just because that was their passion. And I realized, I mean, I think to me, the thing about STEM and science and curiosity, it's a way of living and a way of looking at the world. So I felt like step taking a sideways step into whether it was psychology or then filmmaking and then kind of coming back in my career to emerging technology and then systems innovation, all of those things rely on a healthy dose of curiosity, especially if you want to make something new. It takes asking questions. And actually, I think even just to thrive in the world today, one kind of needs to be curious about what's actually happening. And its systems are becoming more and more interconnected. And so having that as a skill is really important. And I would say one of the problems with that idea of perfection, or let's say displaying what feels like vulnerability, is if you want to know things, you have to ask questions. And at some point in school, it feels like if you ask questions, you're the dumb one. But because you inherently have to acknowledge that you don't know something. And so a lot of the work I do now, where I work with entrepreneurs and corporates and people who are really high caliber top of their game, this idea of humility is a really important part of that. And when I look back at how science functions, you need a high degree of humility to get to a breakthrough. I mean, if you thought you knew everything, what would there be to discover or design? I've interviewed so far women who are in quite conventional uh, STEM subjects, but you've had a very unconventional journey, haven't you? Can you describe it in a nutshell, what your career has been? Yeah, so I formally studied social psychology and abnormal psychology, but I did that having realized partway through my studies that I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I spent four years um, in and out of the film industry, kind of wanting to tell stories, and, and I would say putting a lens of curiosity on how humans behave. I mean, the best stories are specific in nature, but universal in their message, because we all have this core of how we function and how we socialize and our hopes and dreams and how we navigate social structures. But the industry itself is an absolutely horrific place to work. And I just sort of lucked out and fell into an opportunity as the tech boom was really picking up steam. And I had someone who believed in me and gave me an opportunity. And it was really, in truth, I was at a very, very cutting edge um, organization on working on emerging tech. And it was, you know, a moment I very clearly remember as being the only woman in a room full of, you know, 35 male engineers and business executives. And I'm a quick study. And because I tend to work in emerging technology, there's only people who kind of know so much anyways, because it's all quite new. But it was very intimidating. And yet I found the environment of technology really interesting and pursued that, you know, for 10, 15 years um, across uh, you know, digital agencies and advertising and user experience and human factors work and then startups and then cloud computing. And at that stage, I kind of was still looking at how humans function in these contexts. And I became really interested in leadership and characteristics of leadership, because while we're seeing this incredible um, focus on technology and the rise of Silicon Valley and, you know, people throwing money at startups, I, I just feel like we're we're sort of doing a disservice to our global civilization by not putting at the helm of those organizations people who are really gifted leaders. And that's sort of what led me into the innovation space and looking at systems change. Because 
technology alone untethered, just like any kind of science, chemistry alone can lead to the atom bomb or Agent Orange or mustard gas, right, when misapplied. Or if you don't have the presence of mind to say there will be unintended consequences, we may not know what those are, but part of the job of a responsible scientist is to be mindful of that all the way along. And then I think as a responsible citizen to find ways to make sure that science isn't abused or misapplied. And I think we're, we're having a reckoning around that in technology right now with the humane tech movement and many of the people who are part of early, you know, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, um, facing the regrets they have about what's happened with tech addiction. When I was listening to your journey, I was just thinking, my goodness, as a human being, you must have had to draw on so much courage to be pushing in an area that really hasn't established itself yet. I mean, you're, you're, you're pushing this. It sounds like you're in an, in an area that has yet to discover its own self. Do you think courage plays a part in that? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I was just going to say it's, it is such a lonely road. I mean, part of where I, I lucked out is I, I pursued a, an executive program, um, a leadership program that focused on creativity and innovation. And, you know, as a, once, once you sort of hit your forties, it's hard to find comrades um, who are equally courageous. I mean, I think there's things like startup founders, but there's such a competitive bent and finding support uh, and people who don't look at you like you're completely crazy when you tell them what you do, I think it's really important. It is, I mean, I often think back, I have this set of books um, called the, I think they're called value tales. We had them as kids and they're about all these things like courage and perseverance. And I, and what I think is determination. And it was about Louis Pasteur and, you know, the invention of um, the vaccine for rabies and how, what a lonely road it was and how people ridiculed him and he would just work away in his laboratory. And, you know, the, or maybe it's the value of believing in yourself. It was something like that. And I, that, that is not a joke. Um, doing, doing work that is at the forefront is lonely and it, it definitely takes courage. And yet I, I do think there's courage on display across so many kinds of trailblazing industries or be it, be it immigrants who came to a new country to pursue their dreams, whatever it is, um, I think change requires courage. And then you just make a choice. Do you just want to survive or do you want to leave the world better than you found it? And, and, and I don't want to be dismissive about surviving because surviving can mean supporting a family, bringing joy to others. There's, that's a very important role. But I think there's a question of how do you want to contribute and what, what stamina or resources do you have? So how much of that is influenced by being a woman? I mean, I, th I think I read about this when, you know, or if you talk to people of color, minorities, any kind of group that's been marginalized, they talk about having to do twice as well. And, you know, you have no latitude. Um, and I think that's true as a woman as well. I mean, you just you just do not have as much latitude for making mistakes or so much more as just I don't want to say so much more is expected of you, but it comes with its own challenges. And, you know, like anything else, when you're the only one, whatever it is, woman or man, you have to work extra hard to connect with others. You might be missing a shared language or a lexicon or a set of gestures that are understood or reference points. You know, it's like, this is why when people talk about the locker room, 
like, yeah, there's an entire young adulthood spent forging shorthands that can be disparaging or not. And we don't share in that for good or for ill. It's just different. And I think a lot of people are threatened by difference. You mentioned you walked into a room and you were the only woman there and it was really intimidating being amongst all these male engineers. What was the process? What process did you have to go through? Because often women can get stuck and actually just leave because of that feeling. You didn't clearly, but what was the process you had to go through to get to the other side of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling because, um, I mean, I, I'll be the first to tell anyone, no one ever believes it, but I have extremely uh, severe social anxiety and I, I, you know, like to take my own car to events and, you know, occasionally I'll just hit a wall and need to leave. Um, and <laughs> I, I definitely lean towards introversion, even though I get paid as a facilitator and I'm often up in front of large groups. No one believes that, but it's... I think we all develop coping mechanisms. And at the time when that occurred, I was having really severe panic attacks. Um, it's sort of when I realized I was struggling with anxiety and, um, I, it, and on that particular trip, I think probably cut to a week later, I was sitting in an airport lounge. I mean, it was a long, complicated international trip in a series of different cities. And it was a crazy amount of work. And I was probably overtired. And I was just sort of sitting there with tears streaming down my face, like not crying, but just anxiety. Like this is part of a panic attack. Um, I, you know, I think probably what made a difference in that room in that particular instance um, was that I was able to contribute something and realizing that we had overlapping but distinct roles in this company and its success. And I was able to contribute something unique. And so there was a matter of, I think, reminding ourselves, hierarchy is so much part of our culture, and it's certainly a part of a very patriarchal culture. But recognizing that what we bring is, again, it's just different, not better, not worse. And I wouldn't even say in that case, it had to do with being a woman. I was bringing experience out of you know, content and film and media and a really different element. And over time, I sort of built up my own technical knowledge. And I sometimes joke that I'm a geek to English translator. Like I've now spent so much time with developers that I'm usually the one sitting and communicating between engineers and creatives or clients or account people. Um, and I, I think like anything, it's just realizing it's a different skill set. So I don't really know how I... I don't think I had a choice to leave. I mean, I was in I was in the south of Italy at a research facility, so I was like, uh, I can't really go anywhere. But you know, I just sort of sweated it out, <laughs> and then came home and and found help. You know, found found ways to 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 shore up my skills in dealing with anxiety. One thing I'm really discovering is that mental well being and emotional well being is almost more essential than education itself. What's your view on that? Yeah, so at some point a few years ago, even when I when I founded my company, I sort of I used to say we were kind of framework generalists, the people I work with, and now I think we say more that we're expert generalists. And you know, there's a pro and a con. I used to think that that meant, um, oh, you're a dilettante, you don't know how to focus. But in this sort of increasingly enmeshed and interdisciplinary world people who can sit across industries and subject matters and connect dots are important, or so I like to tell myself. And one of the things that's interesting about the expert generalist bent is that it calls out that learning how to learn is almost more important than what you're learning. And I feel similarly about mental health 
in that it, or it goes back to the oxygen mask rule kind of thing, put your mask on or else you can't, you know, before you help others, because if you can't figure out how to stabilize your own well-being, then irrespective of the subject matter, you will not be able to excel. And, you know, I think too many people um, put up with an enormous amount of stressors on a daily basis in their workplace without ever questioning that those things may be detracting from their ability to contribute or to excel or to continue learning. It's like when you're just getting by and you're not really paying attention to, to optimizing, you know, yourself, then how are you delivering well in the workplace um, or with your family, you know, when you're stretched thin? So I definitely agree with you. I think that well-being and uh, like, I think some of it's cultural. We're lucky that we live in a time when people are talking more about therapy and mindfulness and presence and all of those things. You know, we're starting to question a culture of busyness where you're bragging about how little you slept. I think that self-awareness also underpins that and knowing what you need and how you work well, each of us. Um, so I do think that's a huge piece of it across any industry. And I, and I suspect that for women in STEM fields, they, they face, again, just like any other marginalized group, additional pressures just to be showing up. It's a whole other topic that I think we could probably spend hours talking about because um, how we actually develop that mental well-being, emotional well-being is a very topic. For young people today in schools, everything seems to be more focused on uh, attaining marks and achieving certain academic goals. And there's less emphasis on enjoying the journey it's rather it's more about the destination you don't seem to have been a student who was goal oriented I mean you have so much self-awareness where did that come from I mean were you inspired by someone was it a role model that taught you all this I, I mean, I will, I, it, it sounds, I, look, I've had a lot of therapy. <laughs> so, and I've spent a lot of time working on myself. I mean, I think we had, I, all through university, just brutal drag out arguments with my parents about my studies and my degrees and why am I not getting a PhD? And, you know, what am I ever going to amount to? It's like, you know, it, 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 I think, and I went to a, I went to high school that was very, very much focused on, um, you know, m most of the students in our school went, ended up at Ivy League schools. And, um, but with that said, I think I was, I don't really know where it came from. I was a little unconventional even then. And maybe that's because I got good marks in high school. I drew on my college application. I was, I was dabbling in fashion design at the time and I drew on my application and I, I remain convinced that's why I got into the university that I went to. Um, because there were, there were marks to back it up, but I also wanted to have a more well-rounded kind of approach to life. And I, 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 I don't really know where it came from. I mean, I think early on my dad used to say, and he would lecture at these things for talented kids, you know, find what you love and work hard at it. But then cut to years later when I said I wanted to be a filmmaker and not a PhD in chemistry, that, that, that was not okay <laughs> with them. So I was like, oh, well, it's only okay for other people to find what they love, but not me. Um, so, you know, I kind of stuck to my guns over time and I don't really know where it came from, honestly. Um, I, I think about this a lot. I have two nieces and I'm, I'm really conscious that, you know, sometimes it's luck and, and your path forks in a different direction and sometimes it's encouragement and sometimes it's just 
a constitution that's been given the right conditions. I, I don't I don't really know. I mean, I think with all of that said, the importance of having role models around um, is a big one. And just seeing people who look like you doing the thing you want to do. I mean, that I really do believe in that. And so, you know, I remember someone saying something in the in the election, this past election, where kids now wouldn't have thought, why wouldn't a woman be able to run for office? Like, that's just what it is. But that's because they're seeing it that way. And for, you know, 200 years, that's not really what we've seen. So um, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Were you driven by a rebelliousness to prove everyone wrong? I mean, I think the um, <laughs> the desire to be able to support myself is part of how I, you know, prove my parents wrong, <laughs> even though they don't understand what I'm doing. Um, one thought occurs to me, which is that I would say, you know, stories of early exploration have always held particular sway for me. I love maps. I've always loved maps. Um, and I think the value of a good metaphor in guiding someone can be really stabilizing. And it's taken me a while, but it's become really clear that the, the themes of maps have meant a lot to me. Um, and in this idea of the journey, not the destination, um, or the journey is the destination, which has actually been something I've held on to for a long time. Um, the idea of using tools, like learning to master tools for navigation, rather than needing to know the map, that became something that has been very stabilizing to me. And so the idea of education as playing a role in that, again, when you learn how to learn, then you can you can navigate your way through new lands. Like, you know, old, old naval um, seafarers would use the sextant or other astronomical tools and the stars and they could find their way because of course there was no map in the early days. And I think we're kind of coming back around to a time like that now as we're watching the landscape change so rapidly, whether it's automation or AI or big data, you know, will we have jobs? What's going to happen? And I see that as incredibly overwhelming um, for people who either struggle with education or haven't had access to education. But when you know how to learn and you know how to use the tools, I think there's some comfort that you'll be able to find your way. So for, for me, that I think has been a really big part of, of all of this, whether it's like I'm still clear that I don't have a job that neatly fits into a, a box I can tick. But I also feel very aware of how rapidly the landscape is changing and that this is going to be a thing that many people face. Uh, and this is why I come back to scientific method. I think curiosity... Um, asking questions, trying things, finding courage to tinker, find new ways forward. It kind of gives you comfort in the unknown. And also failing. Failing has been such an essential part of an engineering process, for example. What are your perspectives on failure? It's yeah, a good question. Um, I have a bit of a soapbox rant about failure because I've spent you know, uh, quite a number of years now working with entrepreneurs and innovation and certainly in the Silicon Valley space, people love to talk about fail early, fail fast, fail often. And I, I think that the tolerance for failure, it's a really interesting thing, especially when you work with organizations where like, yeah, yeah we want to develop a learning culture. And then you say to them, right, okay, you know that that has HR implications, right? That if, if you really want to let people experiment and fail, it means you can't fire them when they do. And then everyone kind of looks at you blankly, like, oh, really? And I, some years ago, heard um, a head of innovation from PricewaterhouseCoopers um, recall this story from Fermi, the scientist, 
which was that there is no such thing as failure. There's either data or discovery. The experiment either goes the way you thought it would or it doesn't, in which case you learn something. And I think that that's a better framing, frankly, because part of what it does is it puts the onus on the scientist or the person who's taking the risk to have a hypothesis. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to do something and did it go the way you thought or not? And what did you try? What else can you try? You know, and so the creativity that's necessary to keep finding your way forward towards data and discovery is a lifelong journey. You can apply it to relationships, right? I mean, you can apply it to anything. Um, and so I think that's my sort of take on failure is I do think we need to allow people to experiment, but even the word experiment, I mean, this is the benefit of what the scientific method has given us. And I think if we could help young people orient towards what experimentation means and you normalize that data and discovery is part of any experimentation, that's how we've ended up where we are. That's what progress is founded on. Yeah, I completely agree. You must be working with both men and women. Is there a gender imbalance in your workplace? The funny thing is, um, I had been working in Europe for quite a number of years, and there was a heavy male sort of hierarchy in the leadership and management teams. Um, and then I did some work in Canada for the ensuing several years in which it was mostly led by women, really amazing, tough, smart, creative women. Um, and I work with a mix of people now. And in my consulting work, I've worked with a number, you know, I'd say there's a good balance. And I wouldn't say that I'm gravitating more towards women than men. But I've, you know, in my own sort of pivot over the last 10 years or so, I've purposely sought out really exceptional high caliber people. And that tends to hinge more on self-awareness than gender, um, that sort of issue of humility. And I think that women have an easier time finding their way to that humility, in part because it's the stance that we're taught that we are, that it is unbecoming to be boastful. Uh, it's unbecoming to be confident, right? So my observation is a little bit more in a hindsight kind of way that I think maybe there's a shorter path for women to really embodying um, a stance that leads, that leadership comes from a place of humility than for men. But I still think the best people I work with are those who, who lead from that position. And, and I feel very lucky to have found a bunch of men that, that really do that. That's amazing because it kind of suggests that the tables might be turning within tech fields because haven't we come from an era where the nurturing, caring, empathetic side of human nature had no place in technology. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that on, um, I have to think about it. I mean, one of the things I'm really conscious of is that we are, we're going to face a wave of demand for what are being called pink collar jobs, um, caring jobs, nurturing jobs, because we have this massively aging population. And so it's interesting because now you're also seeing a lot of the focus in technology on dealing with aging, be that in medicine or chemistry, but also in robotics, right? So a lot of the robots that we're looking at now are what can you design that could help deliver care for aging populations in part because many of the unemployed workers who are male do not want pink collar jobs. Um, and th that's an interesting conundrum, um, whether it has to do with caring or anything else, it's a reality we're gonna face. Um, but I think that there's another element here, which is that as we face the so-called unintended consequences of some of the tech that we've designed, 
you could argue that a lot of it has been driven by a dominant framing, um, the sort of industrial framing, which came out of the 19th and 20th century. We did not have women in leadership positions. And I'm sure there are ways to argue that the way we've scaled businesses, the way we've grown businesses, the way we have created large-scale operations, which don't have the kind of nurturing or humanity that women-led organizations tend to have, um, that we are paying the price for some of that now. And so I think we are going to see some recalibration, not only out of necessity, but because a balanced point of view is going to be a more sustainable one for the future. I just feel like your views are so cutting edge. And I feel like some industries have so much to catch up on. Because with some of the women I've spoken to, um, if not all, they've talked about having to manage their emotions in the workplace, almost as though they're ashamed of having them. And they assume that their emotions hold them back in some way. Is that something you've had to grapple with? I mean, I think it's, you know, I can definitely, I recall times working in some of the the more like really hardcore tech um, contexts. And yeah, there's definitely a more macho sort of male culture. And again, showing emotion would be considered weakness or not optimal, let's say. And I think, I mean, there's, there's such interesting discussions of whether they're more masculine or more feminine traits. I mean, I remember taking a class in college on human sexuality, and I've actually never been able to find reference to it again, but there was a model for looking at masculinity versus femininity. And I guess typically prior to this point, there had been kind of a two-pointed scale with masculine on one end and feminine on the other. And, you know, there would be a slider and you'd sit somewhere along that scale. And then this breakthrough happened where they created a two-by-two set of axes and you could be high on masculine and high on feminine or low on both or high on one and low on the other. And they found that the best leaders were high on both masculine and feminine skills and traits. And so I've always sort of thought about these things, fluencies. And I I think, you know, with my mom as an immigrant, she spoke seven languages. And this idea of languages or modalities or how we communicate and becoming fluent, um, like that's what really underpins successful human relationships no matter what. And even if we speak the same actual language, um, we have different ways of communicating. And so all of those things around subtext or body language or facial cues you know, that's what makes the best leader is someone who has fluencies across um, a large set of different human types. And that includes men and women. And I, and I do think that women tend to be slightly better at reading those cues, not all, but I think that the best leaders require that. I find it amazing that our natural characteristics as women, I know it's massively stereotyping, but generally our, our characteristics are really useful in technology, but yet they've had to be suppressed. Where do you think we are today as women in STEM? There's certainly been this revolution, you know, whether it's from the push that has been happening around STEM education and, you know, girls who code and Goldie blocks and, you know, all these different things where people are kind of saying, hey, I want to bring along other people. And there have been, you know, like my mom, trailblazers. I just found out that I, I didn't realize it. She just had her 50th college reunion. She was one of 48 women in a class of a thousand that year. 
And I am really conscious that there have been women all along the way who have, for whatever, I would say for whatever reason, their passion for science simply outweighed the discomfort with being an outsider and the, the cost of pursuing that career. And now I think we may be facing other kinds of challenges where the messages to women are, you can have it all, you can have a family, you can, you know, you can, you can do all this. And we're sort of hiding the fact that there are concessions no matter what. We can't, no one can have it all. There's always a cost. And I think that our society would be better off if we had equal representation of women and men in all fields, um, just because, you know, we talk about diversity and perspectives. And there's a lot of research now that shows that diverse teams produce better work and better bottom lines for companies. Um, and part of diversity is just having people with different perspectives. That includes women and includes all kinds of different people. So I, I see progress. I think there is progress. I think that anyone who feels threatened by the entry of new people, no matter what, into their field is going to fight. And so I think as we're seeing globally and internationally, as we're seeing percentages tip in different ways, we are seeing the very ugly side of people um, fighting for what they think is is their right or their position or the competition. I think there's a lot of pressure on them to have it all. And I think women have a very unrealistic expectation of what having it all means. And so they're possibly in continuous disappointment that they're not reaching those goals. How do we strike a balance today of having it all, whatever that means? I mean, I think as with anything, um, you know, when you get into coaching of any kind or you know, probably some types of therapy, whatever it is, it, the, the idea of priorities, there's no way around it. Uh, we really all are limited by 24 hours in a day. And then we have limits of financial resources and social structure support and all those kinds of things. I think it's been really interesting to see more and more people talking about trade-offs in leadership. Like, okay, we've had great, you know, was, was Steve Jobs a great leader? I mean, he sounded like a horrible human being to me, but did great work. And there are plenty of people like that across science and technology, all of STEM and, and art um, as well, all fields. And so I think these questions of how relentlessly you want to pursue something, whatever it is, and what, what's the trade-off you're willing to make is you can sort of ignore that that's the reality. And then you wake up, you know, when you're 50 or 60 and you go, what happened? Or increasingly, you can focus on that level of self-awareness and discipline. It takes work. Um, and a lot of what I'm, what I'm working on right now has to do with this idea of the pursuit of mastery of whatever it is and making decisions of what you're willing to trade away in those 24 hours. And, and I just, I don't think there's any great guide for it because I, I there are days where I wake up, I'm like, why am I doing what I'm doing? I, I don't really know. And I can, I mean, it's helpful to me. I think about my nieces and I, it's become something where I find myself thinking, well, what are, what are they going to ask me, you know, 10, 20 years from now? Like, what were you doing? Why did you do this? And what can I live with that? That's become one way that I look at it. And then secondarily, there's just what gets you out of bed every day. Life is just tiring. I mean, I don't mean to be complaining, but it is, there's so much coming at us at any given time. And what brings joy, I, and also just what's your baseline inclination? Each of us has a skill set. How do we amplify that? How do we do more with it? I don't know. So it seems like the choices we have to make are what makes us happy and what are we willing to compromise on? Is that 
would you say that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I get one of the things that struck me, I do a lot of stuff as well with civic engagement um, and civic participation, because I'm interested in it. I never had, you know, I think at some point, I kind of woke up and was like, wait a minute, I benefit from freedoms that have been hard won by others who've come before me. And something that has come up recently is this idea of sort of moral talking about moral center or moral responsibility and how uncomfortable it makes us as secularists. And I've always felt, you know, I lean more towards science as, as a religion than anything else. But, and I don't think that science and religion are oppositional. Um, my dad always used to say that, you know, religion answers the why and science answers the how, and they're separate things and they can emerge, you know, they can exist and emerge in different ways. But I do think that there is a question of integrity for each of us. Nothing we do exists in a vacuum. And I think that's the third piece of it is kind of why are you doing it? Yes, great. Hedonism, being happy. And I I think we each do better when we're joyful. And then I just think I feel that I have a responsibility to help make that possible for others. And so in, in the applied aspect, like you can be a theory, you can be work in theory or you can work in applied science and theory is really important. It moves things forward as well, but without application, we're not really changing the world. So I, I think for me, it's a balance of indulging in curiosity and the questions, but also then applying that so that others can benefit from, um, you know, the good fortune that I've had. Yeah. I mean, on a practical level to get this far takes a lot of work. It's either a lot of work gaining experience in industry or it's a lot of work studying. And essentially, it's a huge time investment. And what I've found with women in STEM is that by the time they are ready to relax a little bit, their biological clock is almost done ticking. Have you got any ideas on how to navigate those tough choices that we need to make as women, should you want to also explore having a family? I mean, again, this is one of those tough ones where I'm really conscious about, and I think it's when my psych background kicks in, is I want to be really respectful for the individual choices and factors that each woman faces. Um, and we all have such different sets of constraints. And I, I, you know, I've certainly, I've watched a few friends go through a process of freezing eggs um, at some point, I decided to do that. Um, the doctor referred to it as an insurance policy that he thought I would never need, but who knows? <laughs> what well, 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 remains to be seen. Um, but in that process, I definitely saw women um, experiencing really, really different sets of challenges, be they financial or support from family or lack of support, um, different kinds of partnerships and and different perspectives on whether that is, whether it makes sense to do that um, and, and what's worth pursuing. I've, I've had friends adopt children and others who I think are just dealing with sort of resignation and loss and sadness. Um, and I, I think it's such a dynamic process because we, we don't ever really know what's going to happen. And again, it's priorities. I suppose if having a child is the biggest priority, then you'll figure it out. And I, I have seen people do that. And then, you know, maybe you move into a one bedroom apartment, you cut your expenses, you know, you figure it out, you move, move home, because it takes a village. You know, I've seen other people, I've had friends who are founders, and I have a friend, you know, a dear friend and colleague who launched a, a school with her newborn strapped to her chest. I mean, it just, she was like the, you know, the, the mascot for the school, this little girl. Um, so, 
I, I, I don't want to in any way discount it. I also am conscious that there have been women across history who have picked cotton with their child on the back and women who've crossed oceans, you know, with several children and none of it's easy. I, I do think that like our family structures now are really challenging. When I mean, when I was born, my mom faced quite some animosity from other colleagues. She would keep me under her desk in a basket at the beginning. You know, this is shortly after her postdoctorate work. And she was an prof- early professor at the time, assistant professor. And it is really, really hard. So I, I think that the social and family structures we face now are not making it easier. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> Maybe you just keep choosing what makes you happy then. Just, just follow your heart and things will fall into place. I think what's tricky for women is following your heart can often be misinformed. I mean, when I was following my heart to get a PhD, not once did I think about child rearing. And then, you know, once finishing my my doctorate, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I should start thinking about this. And But you know, then you're highly qualified and you want to get into the workplace and climb the ladder there. So it's just, what advice would you give to women who are expecting to have it all? They're, they're young, they're just embarking on their career. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I, I think for sure that it's, I think the idea of following your heart has to be caveated with the fact that there's always a cost. I mean, you can choose to do that, but you have to know that you're, you may well be giving something up. And so I, to me, I think that the real key is it, it's a constant recalibration of what direction you're headed and, and what's ahead of you and what you're leaving behind. Um, and I think that needs to be done fairly frequently. And we have choices, you know, and w- where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, I do believe that. I think if, you know, if you have a fancy bank account, great, but maybe you don't. I think like anything in life, first of all, there's no guarantees because even if you pursue an advanced degree, there may be limited spots or, you know, who knows what happens. And so I think it's a constant um, series of trade-offs and trying to decide what's worth it. I mean, we do, I think we're really lucky. Look, and science itself has in, in terms of fertility and and with culture, right? We we've there's so much more opportunity now, and the advances that are happening um, mean possibilities that that simply weren't there 20 years ago, um, or were miraculous, or really unaffordable. As we're striving for balance more generally, and like I said earlier, realizing that it's not about. I mean, I I can't. I, I think they're rare is the person who enjoys an 18 hour day. That's just, it's not healthy. You can't sustain it. Um, I, I don't think it's what most of us want. And so then a question becomes, how do we structure our lives to afford us the best opportunities and to try to make life as livable as possible? Um, and I, I think some of the work that I'm doing now has to do with organizational structure and the future of work. You know, how do we work in collectives? How do we even look at things like portable benefits and kind of recognize the changes that are happening in the structure of the workplace because there's very little stability. I think anyone who has fooled themselves into thinking they have a stable job is doing themselves a disservice. Again, it's about being, I I think it's about taking a dispassionate, wide-eyed view on what the reality is of the world around us. And there's very, unless you're a tenured professor, and even then, um, (laughs) you know, lest you lean into sexual misconduct, your job may not be as safe as, as as you might think. Um, and so I think these ideas of finding peers and finding support groups and forging relationships and coming together and maybe offsetting costs in different ways. I mean, even things like co-living and co-housing and 
And I think there's so much interesting stuff that's bubbling. Um, I don't think it's about returning to utopian ideals of the commune, but I do think that we need to find new ways forward to support our social structures and our well-being. And I think that we'd all benefit from that. Women in STEM tend to be so in order to find those support structures and groups and like-minded people. I wonder where do women go? I mean, is is there enough support out there? Have you had enough support? What's been your experience? That's such a good question. I mean, it's funny because I also, I mean, I sound like I do work on all kinds of random things, which is sort of true. <laughs> but one of the facets has to do with communities and networks. Um, that's part of systems innovation and how ideas spread and, you know, and where are the nodes in the network. And I'm sort of fascinated by the rise of membership clubs and different kinds of groups around conferences. And we're now starting to see women's only clubs happening. And there's a lot of debates, pros and cons around that. Um, In STEM fields, I mean, I think probably Meetup was an early harbinger of these kinds of gatherings where people could find each other. Um, And I don't, I don't really know. I know. I mean, I I looked to my mom and mom was always very involved in, you know, women in science, women in engineering and supporting other women and kind of paying it forward. Um, So I think there's a lot of informal bent around that. And there's, I I can't like off the top of my head, I don't have a great example. I think probably within alumni groups, there are support systems where, you know, women are looking for other women in science and people are talking about it. Do you think that competitiveness has actually prevented those support groups from evolving? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I've been such a part of such an, a non-traditional pathway, you know, like for my mom, there was a PhD track and I think those spots are coveted. And I've had other friends, women in science who've pursued PhDs and have found them just unbelievably competitive and crushing. Um, and, so I, th- I think that there is, and I've read something recently that had to do with that, with, you know, given this sort of mindset that women have typically had of like, oh, there's only ever going to be one or two spots for women. And so that means we have to, you know, push the other people out of the way so we can have that spot. But that thinking is destructive, right? If, if we start to instead say, no, there's, there's room here, you know, we take an abundance rather than scarcity mindset, as touchy-feely as that might seem, is we are undercutting. Actually, you know what it is? I, I remember that there was, it was a commencement speech um, recently from a woman soccer player, um, I think Abby Wambach. And, that, and that's what she was sort of saying is, is our own mindset has been self-defeating because we are limiting the amount of women that we can help lift up. And if we instead just said it's for the best, the spot is for the best player, forget that there's only one or two for women, we, we need to be you know putting a hand out and helping more people up onto the platform. So I don't know. I mean, I think some of it is in our hands. And it's funny because the word dispassionate just keeps coming to mind. And I think that in some ways, that's a very scientific point of view. But you have to take emotion out of it to to some degree and say, what is going on here? When you take a dispassionate look at things, there are a lot of people who are threatened, and no one ever got anything done alone. So the, the more that we can clear the way for others, I think we do justice for everyone. I would not say I've achieved everything I want. I don't really know what I'm going to achieve, though. I mean, I think balance would be one of those things. Um, I, I, you know, and I would like a family. Um, <laughs> who knows how that's going to happen? Um, the mysteries of the world hopefully will be revealed. Um, but I do think that one of the things I've gotten better at is if, if we go back to the map metaphor, I think that the kind of parameters for how I want to navigate have gotten clearer. And the things that I want to avoid have gotten clearer. And so, you know, coming up with a set of principles, I have a post-it up on the wall near my near my desk of kind of the criteria 
to look for and what I'm willing to put up with and what I'm not. You know, and I think one on that, which I think is really classic for a lot of women, is that I, I'm not going to take a job where I don't feel that I'm valued for what I bring. I don't want to be paid less than what I'm worth. And, you know, I think that these gender pay gaps are really important and they're, they're subtle and they're subversive and they chip away at people's confidence. And, and I do think that those, those sort of the, the messages to women about don't be boastful, don't be overconfident, that's arrogant. You know, that stuff is so detrimental um, over time. And, it, and I think it's tied into things like being willing to negotiate and ask for pay that, that is deserving, especially if you excel and you work hard and all of those things. So I, I think I'm getting closer to just like wanting to, to live a good life and one where I am contributing back. And if I'm getting up every day and I feel great and get to work with people I adore, it's, it's like, I mean, for me, the way I'm structuring my life is I am working on trying to build a better future and to impact really big systems. Um, and some of that is environmental and some of that is sociopolitical and who knows, right? But I am getting clearer and clearer about the ways in which I want to do that. And so the method seems to matter. Um, and I don't have to be the expert in everything. Like that's part of the joy too, is being able to seek out people who really excel in their fields. I feel like I have enough fluency across scientific disciplines, across several other fields, but then I want to work with the people who are really, really doing it well um, and have deep specialization. So I don't know, part of it, I think is just figuring out how each of us fit in the big picture. Do you have any regrets that you can share that, you know, will hopefully help other girls to not kind of fall into the same traps? I mean, it's a really tough one because from, for whatever reason, from a pretty early age, I had this keen sense of absolutely wanting to be sure I didn't have regrets. I think, and even when you have that mindset, it, you, you can't always avoid them. But in, in each sort of major crossroad that I've faced, I've been pretty clear-minded and able to navigate it. I mean, I would say the thing that is a more pervasive regret, though, is any time when I have let someone else prompt me to doubt my self-worth or any time I have allowed myself to feel less than because of some stupid reason. I mean, and that includes, you know, there are times where I walk into a room and I'm like, oh, I don't have a PhD. I'm not as good as these people or I don't have a right to speak. Those are the moments I regret because the thing I've come to understand more, and if we do break it down to chemistry and genetics, we are each really unique. We are. That's, it's not hyperbole. We, are, we, we do not have a matching set of genetics or chemistry or circumstance out there. I was just filling out something sort of fun called a manual of me, um, where it, when, when working in teams, it's almost like if you wrote a user guide or a user manual, um, how would you describe how best to work with you? And I think centrally at that is, is a desire to want to be able to take what is uniquely me and do the best I can with it, whatever that entails, and want to apply that to the good of the world, because there are definitely things that no one but me could do. And I don't say that in a way that's, oh, I'm the best, right? But I think I've regretted that at times I have wished to be other than what I am. And those are probably the darkest times. Um, and I think that culturally, anyone who's blazing a trail in different ways, women are very quick to feel that, that they're in the wrong or they have no right to be there. And that's that's the thing to look out for. Is when you feel that, why why is that so? And is that true? And what else could be true? Gosh, I literally have goosebumps listening to you say that because, you know, my, my career has also been riddled 
with those feelings and I also feel that that was a lot of wasted time feeling that way and uh, I think collectively as women if we can celebrate who we are and what our talents are and our skills are and develop ourselves further that would be a better use of our energy than focusing on where we lack and uh, I think on that note I'm going to leave it there because it's just been so much to reflect on what you said and I really appreciate you coming on it's just been incredibly inspiring and insightful and thank you so much thank you it's you know for what it's worth we all have our own journey but there's there is much shared it's definitely a universal journey so thank you and thank you for pulling us together that's it from my stem guest this week wow we really left no stones unturned when it comes to discussing all the various choices that we as women in stem have thanks for listening this week on silence catch you next week